Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Richard Garside, director of the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies, about their latest report on how prison systems in different European countries are dealing with the coronavirus outbreak and what we can learn from their data to ensure we are better prepared for the future. My name is Richard Garside and I'm the the director of the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies. And uh, over recent months, really since the beginning of lockdown, we've been trying to track how different European jurisdictions are doing in terms of dealing with coronavirus in prison. And we've produced various infographics and bits of information over the last few months. And we've just released now a new report which tries to compare the different jurisdictions on some of the main measures. Okay. And what's the sort of main purpose of doing something like this? Well, if we kind of go back um, a few months, uh, if you recall, we we had a situation where we didn't really quite know what was going to be happening in the prison system as a result of coronavirus. Uh, there indeed were concerns that maybe potentially hundreds of prisoners uh, could uh, could die as a result of that and thousands be infected. And in that context, we thought it was important both to kind of try and just get a sense of how different jurisdictions are handling this really quite, um, you know, unusual situation, uh, partly just, you know, for some real time information, but also as a bit of a record for for how this particular crisis was handled. Because, uh, you know, I think I'm not an epidemiologist or a virologist, but as I understand it, there is a concern we may face pandemics in the future. So it seemed a good opportunity and indeed an important um, challenge to try to track what was going on, which could be used both in the short term, but also, uh, you know, where we face these kinds of problems in the future. Okay, now the title of the report is COVID-19 in European prisons, tracking preparedness, prevention and control. And can you tell me a little bit about um, the methodology behind the report and how many sort of countries were involved and how you went about it? 
it's a report that's been compiled uh, with a number of partner organisations. So we're part of a pan-European grouping called the European Prison Observatory, which again sort of does what it says on the tin. We sort of we're the UK partner to uh, to the European Prison Observatory, and we kind of track prison developments across the European Union and across Europe more broadly. And for this particular project, we had um, a number of different partner organisations. So this report. Uh, also covers a situation in Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary, Italy, Portugal and Spain. And then in addition, the three UK jurisdictions, England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. So there's a number of jurisdictions uh, across. And what we what we did really was that we asked our partners in those different jurisdictions to compile information uh, in line with a consistent grid so that we we collated the information in a consistent way across the different jurisdictions. And I think one of the things we found from that is it kind of raised, in a funny story, as many questions as it answered, because what we found was, of course, inevitably, uh, lots of gaps in data, lots of gaps in knowledge and different ways that this information is collated. Okay. And I noticed, having read the report, that it's over 60 questions, and it was a choice of four answers, wasn't it, that each country was allowed to give. And particularly in the case of Bulgaria, I mean, quite often it said no information available. Does that just mean they haven't collated any or does it mean that none were able to be found? And should we be particularly worried when we see in the grids that there's no forthcoming information? So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we did, uh, and it's, it's, it's one of the kind of problems whenever you create a, try and create a standardised uh, data set, do you go for the lowest common denominator? Um, do you go for kind of the, the most information you know you can get from some jurisdictions and accept that other jurisdictions won't have the same information? Um, or do you try and kind of pitch it midway or, you know, other kind of compromise? And one of the other things that we did is we we had some conversations with the World Health Organization who are themselves uh, starting the process of collating this information. And so we agreed with them that we would try to, as much as possible, match a number of the questions that the World Health Organization are themselves asking. Uh, but yeah, the, the, one of the effects of that is that you do find, for example, uh, in, in countries like Bulgaria, one good example, uh, the information isn't very forthcoming. And what that's telling us is in itself, that's a research finding because it's telling you, well, if you're trying to find out, for example, you know what the standards of healthcare are for, for prisoners, if the governments and jurisdictions can't even provide that information, uh, that's telling you that that's really an area that they should be working on in terms of good practice, good safeguarding. If you don't have that information available, it's very difficult for you really to track how well you're doing. Okay. And the data that was covered in the report, just for the benefit of the listener who um, won't have probably read the report, it covers off human rights, um, how well people are doing at risk assessment and management, um, their referral systems and clinical management, contingency planning, training, risk communication, prevention measures and how well a prison might be doing at case management. And certainly when I read through it, and one of the answers is words to a better effect of something's being implemented fully. Now, did you read through it and sort of think, hmm, I wonder? Yeah, I think you ask a really, um, it's a really good question. And we actually really wrestled with this, how we were going to present it. So um, 
the first set of um, of questions related to human rights standards, and indeed the first question in the report are: Are the standards of healthcare available for people in prison similar to those in the outside community? Uh, now, if we go to the England and Wales jurisdiction, um, and you know, we we went to the prison service and we asked them directly to provide the information, and they said yes, no, they, these were fully compliant with that standard. And we kind of thought, well, you know, I mean, healthcare in, in prisons in England and Wales are no doubt better than in many other countries, uh, first point. But but at the same time, um, anybody who has any kind of knowledge of prisons, and I know, Edwina, that you're very, very knowledgeable about a lot of prisons um, across the UK, uh, will, will immediately think, hmm, well, I'm not quite sure about that. And certainly if you look at the chief inspector's reports, likewise, you get a kind of a sense that there's a real gap of provision. And so we wrestled with this. So how do you prevent present that information? You don't want to just say, yes, it's fully compliant, because that might make us look a bit naive. And so we came up with this slightly clunky form of words of official source claims fully. And within the reports itself, were there particular areas that you sort of felt, oh, these are big red flags? Yeah, that, that, I mean, there there are a number. And again, it's, um, it's worth emphasising that, um, you know, um, one of the problems with comparing this is, on the one hand, we have official responses. So, as I said, we had uh, official responses. In other jurisdictions, our partners were effectively kind of saying, well, you know, to the best of our knowledge, uh, this is what we can see seems to be happening or we're not quite sure. So, again, the comparability isn't there. But certainly, if you look across the uh, the various areas, um, you know, there are certainly, uh, you know, concerns that I think anybody who's worried about the state of coronavirus in prisons, um, you know, should be thinking, my goodness. So, for example, um, in terms of risk assessment, you know, one of the really important areas of the report, um, it's really clear that, that, you know, that there's really patchy records of people going in and out of prison in some jurisdictions. Uh, So, you know, if you don't even know, if you don't have a record of who's gone in and out of prisons, um, how can you be certain that you can track or trace uh, any individual if there's been a um, if there's been an outbreak. Uh, so something is really kind of in some ways mundane as that, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a red flag. Um, the fact that when you have suspected cases, it's not always clear that there's rapid access to testing for suspected cases. For something like staff PPE, again, uh, it was clear that in some jurisdictions, uh, staff didn't have access to PPE when they were collecting samples for testing, so potentially putting staff at risk, both of being infected and also cross-contamination uh, with, with other prisoners, uh, you know, if they're not fully protected. Contingency planning, what happens if there's an outbreak? Again, very, very patchy across the different jurisdictions. Training and awareness for staff, again, quite patchy. And one thing that, you know, I think it was, it was, it was a big concern, uh, you know, to me and, and to others when we looked at this is in some jurisdictions, they're not able to fully isolate prisoners exhibiting coronavirus symptoms. And that actually does include uh, in England and Wales. So, again, you know, some some real issues. I think one of the things that's come out of this work for me is notwithstanding the patchiness um, of the data, it, it really does help to identify where different countries need to do further work uh, to try to just bring themselves up at least to international basic standards in relation to something like coronavirus. 
So how important is good data? Because, you know, prison systems, I think, around the world are beleaguered by, uh, for some reason, the fact that they don't seem to be able to get a hold of data, um, certainly not good data, certainly not reliable data. And is bad data better than no data? It's really important not to get fixated on the data. And I can imagine that if you're a, a prison officer or a prison governor or prison administrator, and you're trying to manage a really, really difficult situation. Um, and someone like me comes along and says, oh, well, your data's not very good, is it? Quite understandably, that can, thing can be just actually a bit annoying, if nothing else, and a kind of a feeling that you're focusing on the wrong thing. Uh, but at the same time, if you don't have good quality data, it's very difficult for you as an administrator or prison member of staff to be able to kind of assess how well are we doing. And that's not just from a managerialist perspective. It can, you know, it can mean the difference between life and death, you know, for prisoners and prison staff. So collating good data is important. And um, actually, I myself am quite a big believer in, in collation of bad data, as long as you're clear that it is bad data. Okay. What we shouldn't be doing is collating bad data and passing it off as good data. But if, as long as you're clear about the limitations of the data that you're collating, uh, that itself can be instructive, uh, if only in helping to highlight areas that you need to improve. And why do you think prisons do find it so difficult to often collate data? And as I said, in amongst these nine sort of countries, um, in quite a few instances no information was available. Because you kind of think also as a, as a public service, that data should just be there and it should just be collated. You know, these things are really important and they're often taxpayer-funded institutions. So should there not be some sort of mandatory obligation that there is actually some data somewhere? It's, I mean, one of the things about prisons uh, is, you know, of course, they, they are often quite sort of, um, they can be quite chaotic places and situations where prison staff are having to deal very quickly uh, with unpredictable developments. And my goodness, you know, coronavirus is a, uh, is a very unpredictable development and prison staff across Europe and indeed across the world, had to respond very quickly to a very unpredictable situation and, you know, did so, uh, you know, better in some places than others, no doubt. Uh, so, you know, there there is a kind of a fundamental challenge there that in the middle of a crisis, uh, you know, collating good quality data isn't necessarily going to be top of the list. It's also worth bearing in mind, of course, that uh, at least on some of the stuff that we looked at in this report, there is probably a distinction between is the information collected in some form or is it known and is it in the public domain? So, you know, on something like collection of, of, of samples for testing and, you know, do staff dealing with these things have PPE? Well, across the report, there's three or four cases across the, those countries where we just say no information. What that means is there was no information available to our European partners. doesn't mean the information is not available somewhere. It's just not in the public domain. Maybe, or maybe it's just not available. So again, making the distinction between what's in the public domain, what's easily accessible, because even if it's not in the public domain, sometimes you really have to dig around for it. These these are crucial questions. But you are, of course, you know, entirely right. It's really important that we, uh, you know, that we as a standard have access to good quality data about prisons. Prisons are very closed institutions, and 
precisely because they're very closed institutions, it's really important that we have maximum transparency on these kinds of issues. And are you hoping to build on this report? Because this information was gathered in, well, sort of April, May of this year. Would you be looking to do another one, say, in six months' time, a year's time with the same countries to see where they've got to or... What's the plan after this one, if anything? In, in terms of next steps for us, there's, there's a few things that, um, that we are particularly keen to do. So firstly, we're going to be um, holding a series of webinars over the coming months, uh, really to just try and bottom out some of the kind of more qualitative and kind of detailed questions uh, about you know, what's been emerging in different jurisdictions. So a combination of sort of just gathering information, sharing experiences, trying to learn from each other about you know, the best way forward. So that's one thing that we're going to be doing. Um, and then secondly, uh, we are going to uh, want to return to doing some further data collection to kind of see if we can track how things have changed uh, since this particular piece of work, if at all. And also, I think, learn from, uh, you know, this particular questionnaire. So, uh, you know, probably introduce some additional questions, maybe remove some of the questions which just proved very difficult to answer anyway. Uh, and just kind of, you know, just try and tighten up the questionnaire. So those are the two main areas that we're going to be developing over the coming months. Um, some discussions through webinars and then some further data collection. Okay, because this report was a standardised survey method, wasn't it? So sort of going forward, I know... There's always, you know, and you can sort of understand why, but there does tend to be a certain element of defensiveness when it comes to prisons being asked any questions. They don't really like scrutiny that much. But it does seem that we need to be able to hear from the people who have actually been serving a sentence throughout this time. How easy do you think that's going to be? Because I noticed in the last couple of days that it looks like all research is being stopped inside certainly our prisons in England and Wales. Yeah, it's a really difficult challenge, this. In the ideal world, we'd obviously want to be able to survey prisoners, find out about their experiences. and uh, But we've seen even, as you mentioned, the research, uh, even the prisons inspectorate are being very, um, very careful about the degree to which they're going into prisons at the moment. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, precisely at a time like this, you can, again, entirely understand why prison administrators don't want a load of clipboard wielding researchers wandering around um, prisons asking questions you know so there is a real challenge there yeah so realistically I don't think we're likely to be um, approaching prisoners directly uh, about these kinds of issues because it's just you know it's too much of a challenge really to do that but it's obviously really important to as much as possible listen to the voice of those who are experiencing this and going through that. And there are some good newspapers and other things um, that where you know you can start to hear some of those voices and organisations that are particularly focused on trying to elevate and, 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 and magnify the voice of prisoners. And we do, you know, we do need to bear this in mind. You mentioned the kind of uh, you know, closing down of research opportunities. Uh, one of the things that really concerns me at the moment is that effectively the lockdown that prisons currently going through may become the new normal that you know we might be in a situation where for months if not potentially years 
Um, prisons are going to be, um, you know, far more locked down as institutions. Prisoners spending even more time in cells than has been the case. It wasn't very good before coronavirus anyway, but even more so. And general kind of diminution of the rights of prisoners to association uh, and to access to kind of opportunities that, if nothing else, kind of deal with some of the tedium and boredom of being in prisons. It's therefore even more of a reason to try and push for a reduction in the prison population, right? Because there was one of the questions that I was reading in your report, which was about two people sharing a cell. Therefore, they are in a bubble or in a household together. Therefore, if one of them gets coronavirus, then they have to stay in that room for two weeks. You know, mind-blowing. Yeah, I think one of the um, challenges when we think about what happened with coronavirus, just looking at England and Wales, the biggest jurisdiction in the UK, at the beginning of the crisis, the government was faced with a number of different possible options. And one was to reduce the prison population, to just create more headroom, as it were, and create more space for uh, for separate accommodation. And um, they chose not to do that. And what we know is that to date, about um, you know, 23 prisoners have died um, in, in England and Wales, which is certainly lower than many of us feared, but potentially could have been lower. Absolutely. You know, we, and we will never know whether had the government acted more quickly to remove, for example, uh, prisoners with underlying health conditions, get them out of harm's way, whether actually we would have seen fewer deaths than 23 to date. Uh, and I think that's you know something that does kind of haunt me uh, about this whole situation. Now, we have seen a decline in the prison population and actually quite a significant one, about 4,000, um, um, actually more than 4,000 fewer prisoners now than back in mid-March. But that's almost entirely because of the slowdown in the courts. So it's almost entirely because fewer people are being sent to prison. Okay. The numbers who've been released under the temporary release schemes, which were introduced supposedly to deal with coronavirus, we're talking 15 or 20 a week at most. So very, very small numbers. Okay. And my concern now is, is that the government is gearing back up towards getting courts running again, uh, that we're going to start seeing rises in the prison population again, precisely at a time when that really is, is the worst possible outcome. So you know, I do think that there is, um, you know, there's unfinished business here. You know, when we looked at this back in um, a month ago, or actually it was, no, it was early May when we looked at this uh, last, uh, the in, the in about the four to six weeks since the first coronavirus uh, death in France, the prison population in France had declined by 14%. Uh, in England and Wales, it had only declined by 2%. And it's declined a little bit more since then. But nonetheless, uh, you know, England and Wales and the UK more broadly, with the possible exception of Northern Ireland, who are probably doing better on this, we're kind of behind the curve on just getting prisoners who don't really need to be in custody out of harm's way. Isn't there a problem, though, certainly with female prisoners? There might have been some work that went on to try and get women out. But we know, of course, there's a real problem with safe accommodation and, and places to put people in the community. Do you think that played a significant part of the problem? Certainly when you're releasing people from prison, there's lots of moving parts here. You know, So roughly speaking, half of prisoners um, you know, leave prison without any stable accommodation to go to. 
And at the time of a major public health crisis, you can entirely understand you really don't want a situation where um, you know prisoners are being released willy-nilly uh, with nowhere to go to. Uh, and there are also other kind of particular concerns if someone's being released either back into a potentially dangerous situation for them, or if there may be, for example, a domestic violence abuser, you don't want to be sending them back to lockdown at home. Uh, you know, so there are all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't want to release some prisoners. But you're entirely right. One of the problems with the release is the lack of good quality provision for prisoners coming out of prison. So, uh, you know, poor housing options, uh, you know, really kind of challenging sometimes in that regard. And yeah, I'm sure that was part of the mix. I mean, my sense is that if the government had set their mind to it, they could have probably found relatively, you know, some solutions. There are lots of hotel rooms, for example, at the moment, which are fairly empty. So they could have probably found some solutions had they had they chosen to go down that course. So if our listeners are interested in this report and having a look at it, where's the best place for them to find it? The report is published on our website. Uh, so again, just uh, as a reminder of the very catchy, um, very catchy title, COVID-19 <laughs> in European Prisons, Tracking Preparedness, Prevention and Control. And um, so that's on our website. And then it's also tagged with all the other materials. So one of the other things we have on our website, for example, um, is a series of infographics just trying to summarise the situation uh, by different jurisdictions. So if you're keen to know what's happening in Portugal, there's a sort of a at a glance summary of the main situation in Portugal or Spain or, 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 or Germany or wherever. So, um, yeah, so there's lots of resources on our website uh, just kind of summarising you know, in different ways, uh, some of the main uh, issues around uh, coronavirus in prisons across a number of European jurisdictions. Brilliant. Well, Richard, thanks so much for talking to me today. Not at all. It's been a pleasure and thank you for asking me. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.